baptism, Lord's Supper, or uh, an outreach opportunity this week. Um, Father, I know that there are hurts and difficulties in this room far more than I can number or even know of. I know of some. I don't know of all, certainly, Lord. And I, I pray that You would help calm our souls right now. Help us to be, as we learned last week, like a, a weaned child upon his mother. God, we are our weaned children resting upon You. It's the image that David gave us last week in Psalm 131. And so, Lord, I pray that we would rest upon You, that we would find in You all of our satisfaction and joy and encouragement and hope. And I pray, Lord, as we open Your Word this morning, that we would find um, hope and encouragement in here as well. God, for some of us, it, it might mean a, a rebuke as we need to remember the time which we were, were saved from our sin. We need to remember that. We need to renew and kindle afresh the, the gift of God within us. Now, for some of us, it may mean that we have never known the joy of Christ. And it may mean that today is a day of repentance. So I, I pray you'd help. And Father, if we are doing well in Christ and rejoicing, I pray that today just might be another day where you just encourage our hearts and our souls through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, no doubt, no doubt many of you, most of you, know uh, the story of Martin and Gracia Burnham. You know the Burnhams? Raise your hand. Right, some of you. They were, they were um, nationwide news about ten years ago. They are missionaries, New Tribes missionaries to the Philippines. Um, and um, Martin was a line pilot who flew supplies to missionaries in the field. Um, Grace just supported him however they could. They had three children. They served together for 15 years. But it was May 2001. This is just before 9-11. Kind of puts that in context. About 13 years ago. Uh, where they took a much needed romantic getaway without their, their children to a Dulce Palmas resort in the southern region of the Philippines. And, and they just checked in, spent a relaxing day, and went to bed that night, as Grace just said, without a care in the world. As the sun rose up, May 27, 2001, they were awakened and kidnapped by the Abu Sayyaf, an Islamist separatistic terrorist organization uh, operating in the southern Philippines. And uh, initially they were taken under this boat and they, they went across hundreds of miles of ocean to get to Mindanao where they spent the, the next year on the run as the Abu Sayyaf demanded high, high uh, ransom uh, for these missionaries. Their food was meager. Their living conditions harsh. They often slept on the jungle ground, chained to a tree. Martin was particularly. And, and on June 7, 2002, about a year after they'd been kidnapped, an attempt was made to rescue them by the Philippine army. Martin was killed by three gunshot wounds to the chest. Gracia was rescued, though she was injured in her right leg. She, by God's grace, then was able to tell their story in her book, In the Presence of My Enemies. I encourage you to take that book. I encourage you to read it. Um, I read it. It's kind of one of those books I really couldn't put down. It was a fascinating struggle, uh, a fascinating story of their struggles in the jungle, um, being held ransom and being held captive. And uh, one of my favorite excerpts, I don't have time to read it all this morning. I, I would love to, but there, just the time when she was so hungry and so starved that she went to wash in the, the, the lake there a little bit and she went down and she, she saw a fish and she just went and she grabbed it. 
And she had the fish and said, hey, look, Martin, what I have. Do you want it? He said no. And she proceeded to eat it raw um, just because she was so hungry. And she said it was pretty good and it helped. And uh, just kind of that gives you an indication of how how difficult things were for them. Um, Just they weren't fed well on the run. They lost a, a lot of pounds. But I want to draw you this morning to the point in time when she's coming back home. And just I want you to think about her emotions as she came back home, flew back from Manila to Tokyo and then from Tokyo to Kansas City where she had her descent. And she said as she was descending into Kansas City, she said this, a mixture of joy and apprehension swept over me. It was going to be so fantastic to see Jeff and Mindy and Zach again. Even in my excitement, however, I was a little bit nervous. There would no doubt be some awkwardness once we were all together again. I'd never worn the title of single mom before. She's coming back without her husband. I hadn't even thought about what that would be like. I was bound to do it wrong sometimes. I knew that I could only ask God for guidance and not be too hard on myself. And I wasn't even out of the jetway when I got my first glimpse of Zach pacing backwards and forwards. And the instant I got out in the open, a burst of glee went up. Even though there were strangers everywhere, I stretched out my arms from the wheelchair to squeeze Zach. I love you, Mom, he cried, squeezing me back. As I reached for Jeff and Mindy, I exclaimed, Oh, thank God we're back together again. I clung to Mindy and then I I looked at her and she suddenly seemed very grown up. I I don't know if I would ever, I didn't know if I would ever hug you again, I told her. Me neither, Mom. You can just see the the reunion they had. And we left the airport that day and were taken into a shuttle bus to a separate office building to meet the rest of the family. And I, I turned to the family. We had so much catching up to do and we talked fast and furious, of course. And there was laughter, but also tears especially when I told a few stories about Martin's bravery and the struggles that I had with God during my ordeal. Here she says, to be honest, I don't really remember much about that first night. I was too jet-lagged. I can't even tell you who was there, but I, I just remember being surrounded by people who really cared about me. It's probably one of the happiest, joy-filled times of her life, and yet she couldn't quite remember how happy how happy it was. And as we come to Psalm 126 this morning, we're going to see some people happy when they're taken back from their captivity. If you haven't opened your Bibles, I invite you to do so to Psalm 126. For the past several months, we've been looking at the songs of ascents, which begin in Psalm 120 and end in Psalm 134. And so far, we've looked at 11 of them, not taking them in order, but bounced around a little bit. But We have three more after Psalm 126. These were the songs that Israel sang as they went up um, to Jerusalem to worship each year according to His command. And in some way or another, they prepare the pilgrim for worship. And my heart is that these psalms would have an everlasting increase upon our, our worship as well. Well, Psalm 126 is a psalm of joy. It describes the feelings of those who returned home After years of captivity, that's why I told you the story of Gracia Burnham. Although their captivity wasn't quite as harsh as the Burnham's experience, still they experienced similar feelings of of joy and enthusiasm and probably apprehension in some regards as they came back to their homeland. My message this morning is entitled, Coming Back. And here's how the psalm reads, Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. 
The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This psalm breaks nicely in half. The first three verses are the first half. The second three verses are the the second half. Splits right in the middle. The first half of the psalm finds the people of Israel joyful for what the Lord has done for them. In the second half, verses 4 through 6, Psalm finds these people of Israel prayerful. So they're seeking the Lord to do more in their lives. These are my two points this morning. Joyful and prayerful. If you have notes, you can write those down. If not, you can follow along. First point, joyful. Notice the words here of joy. Verse 2, when they were brought back, our mouths were filled with laughter. The the laughter because they were were so happy. Verse 2, our tongue with joyful shouting. They, they, they were just happy and they were joyful and they were sounding it out. A big belly laugh of just how happy and excited they were. Verse 3, it says that they were glad. And even the joy carries over to verse 5 and 6. They, they had joyful shouting. Speaking about the one who comes and brings again a shout of joy. Now, a good question to ask you is why were they so joyful? Why were they so glad? Well, verse 1 holds the key. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion... We were like those who dream. Now, at this point, if you're following along in your Bible, you may have a different translation. I know many of you have an English Standard Version in your laps, which is a good translation, or the New International Version, which reads like this. When the Lord restored our fortunes, we were like those who dream or we're like those who dreamed. The NAS translates it. When the Lord brought back the captive ones, And so you say, which is it? Is it fortunes or captive ones? Or why is it so different? And I I say it's different because in the Hebrew text, these words are very close to one another. Fortunes is shavuv, shavut rather. Captive ones is shavit, shavut or shavit. And the difference between the U and the I is just a little bit longer letter. And uh, small letter, though, makes a big difference. Theologians go back and forth arguing which one was which because even the Hebrew text has, has one in, in the text but then has a correction out to the margins. Shavut or Shavit. And um, to be honest with you, I don't know which one is correct. But here's what I do know. I do know they both refer to the same event. So whether it's fortunes or back to captivity, they refer to the same event. Both translations refer to the time. When the Jews were exiled, brought back, when the exiled Jews were brought back from Babylon, it was at that, that time that the fortunes were restored. Because when the captives came back, they had their land again, they rebuilt their temple, they rebuilt their wall. All the articles that, uh, of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had taken away were brought back and restored to the rightful place. Their fortunes were restored. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about when I say the exile? Maybe some of you don't. Let's just think about the history of Israel. Israel started with God's promise to Abraham. To make of him a great nation and give him a land. And some 400 years later, they were a great nation, two million strong. Uh, They didn't have their land because they were exiled as um, prisoners, slaves in Egypt. But God raised up Moses, brought them into the land. Again, about two million people into the land. And at first, God was their king for about 400 years. Israel, though, demanded a king. 
And so God gave them Saul and then David and Solomon. Sadly, after Solomon's reign, the kingdom divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel was defeated by Assyria in 722 B.C. And Judah was exiled to Babylon, and this is what we're talking about, in 586 B.C., where they remained captive, captured um, in Babylon, exiles for 70 years. The story is told, the story of their return is told in Ezra and Nehemiah, where God stirred the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to send the Jews back into the land and rebuild their temple again in Jerusalem. And all who were willing came back at Cyrus's expense. And Zerubbabel came back and he led the building of the temple. And when that happened, it was a time of great joy. Listen to Exodus chapter 3. After the foundation was, was laid. Ezra 3, 10 and 11. The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And you just imagine it there. They're coming back in, the cities in ruins, but they lay the foundation of the house of the Lord. And, and there was shouts of joy and they're just encouragement that, that now they're back in the land. And in fact, I think verse two is what happened. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. I think they were giddy with excitement like teenage girls sometimes can get. I know I have some. Right? They're just just excited and they're, they're they're like they're in the land. The temple's been rebuilt. The articles of the temple have been restored. The sacrifices begin again. Can you believe it? We are back in the land. And it was a bit like the feelings of Gracia Berna experienced after returning home from a year of captivity. Gone for a year, now she's home. Excitement, joy, rejoicing and celebrating. But I think there's even a, a better parallel. Similar feelings took place in 1967 during the Six-Year War. On June 5th, 1967, with some provocations that happened beforehand, Israel launched a preemptive strike, bombing raids against Egyptian airfields, also, they were engaged in combat in the north with the Syrian army and they attacked Jordanian soil towards Jerusalem in the east as well. And in six days, Israeli forces had taken, care, taken control of the Gaza Strip and all the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt in the south. And from Syria, they took over the Golan Heights. It's very strategic militarily. And they took over the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan in just six days. And there's a famous picture that took place in these days, it's the picture of some Israeli soldiers just after they'd taken control of Jerusalem. And there it is right there. Have you seen this picture before? It's a very famous picture. Where are they standing? What, what's, what's in the background? Who knows what's in the background there? The Wailing Wall. This is like the, the most sacred place that the Jews could ever go. Because they can't go up on the Temple Mount because that's where the, the Muslims worship. They have the thing, their, their mosques up there. But they can get to the Wailing Wall. And... And for basically 1900 years, this was not under Jewish control from AD 70 until 1967, just three years shy of 1900 years. The, the Jews didn't have control of that wall. Now, Jews could go there as they as they traveled um, from time to time. Uh, but even for the past for the 19 years prior to this event, no Jew was permitted to go to this place. It's like you, you couldn't go to their place of worship, their most important place throughout the year. And, and of this very moment right here, one writer writes this. 
There was one moment in the Six Day War which symbolized the great victory. That was the moment which the first paratroopers under Gurr's command reached the stones of the Western Wall, feeling the emotion of the place. There never was and never will be another moment like it. Nobody staged the moment. Nobody planned it in advance. Nobody prepared it. and Nobody was prepared for it. It was as if providence had directed the whole thing. The paratroopers weeping loudly and in pain over their comrades who had fallen along the way. The words of the Kaddish prayer heard by the Western Wall stones after 19 years of silence, tears of mourning, shouts of joy, and the singing of Hatikva. Just the one time, they were so excited. They were, they, were, they were just, here we are, we're standing next to the Western Wall. We, we've not ever able to be here for 19 years. Probably the first time any of these soldiers, probably being 23 years old, 25 years old, 1917, ever got to stand right there. And they were thrilled and they were excited, just like the captives who came back from Israel. And if you look at them carefully, you can kind of see the picture there. They look like they're in a fog. Don't they? They look like they're, they're sort of dreaming. And indeed, that's exactly the feelings those in Israel had when they returned to land after their exile in Babylon. Look at verse 1. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, they were like, we were like those who dream. I mean, coming back was so great that they felt like they were dreaming. Could, could it really be true? God had been so good to them that they could hardly believe it was happening. Now, this should have been no surprise to them. Over and over again, the prophets had prophesied that they would be restored to the land. I'll just give you a, a few Bible verses here. Jeremiah 29:14. God says this, I will restore your fortunes, which, by the way, is very interesting, is the same textual problem that we have in Psalm 126. That's why I'm, I'm sure that they refer to the same thing. It's either Shavuot or Shavit. I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I'll bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Because it refers to exactly the same thing. I'm going to restore your fortunes. I'm going to bring you back into captivity. And those in Israel should have known the promise from Jeremiah 29. Or they should have known the promise from Ezekiel 39. Verse 25, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob. Again, Shavut or Shavit, restore the fortunes or restore the captivity. Same thing. He's talking about the same thing. Now restore the fortunes of Jacob. Have mercy on the whole house of Israel. Talking about bringing them back from captivity. Hosea 6.11 O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. God had promised to restore them and He did restore them. But the actual event brought great emotion from them. You know, so like a birth of a baby. As most of you know, this past Friday morning, Adam and Amy Lask welcomed their daughter Madeline Grace into this world. Yvonne and I had the opportunity yesterday to go and see them. And you all know this. First time moms and dads, what was on their face? Joy was on their face. Happiness was on their face. I wouldn't call them quite giddy like teenagers, but I know that they were, were very, very happy. And as we spoke to them, their stories like the stories so many parents who've had children. Right? Suspicions that they had that Amy was going into labor. She went there, her, her water broke, and then the nurse immediately said, um, 
you're going to have a baby. You might as well just make yourself at home here, sit put. And then, and then, and then she left right away to kind of get things so she could register Amy to, to get into the hospital. And, and Amy and Adam are right there like, we're going to have a baby. They said, we're going to have a baby. And, and they knew this, but just the, the weight of that sinking in was, was upon them. And they, in many ways, were like those who dreamed. It's not like they didn't know the baby was coming. They'd anticipated it for a long time. But you never quite know what your emotions are going to be about or like in that moment. You fathers and mothers know what it's like when you see your baby for the first time. When you see her face or when you hear his cry or when you count his fingers and toes and find out that there are ten of each. When you hold her for the very first time, the emotions are often overwhelming. And the emotion is, is what these all people experienced here. The overwhelming emotions they had when they're back into the land. They, they knew it was going to happen. Maybe they didn't believe. Maybe they should have believed. But, but when you're actually there, it is far different. They were overwhelmed. God's goodness was obvious to all. And in fact, look at the end of verse 2. It says, Then they said, Among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So, so even Israel going back wasn't just an isolated event. The nations saw what God did for Israel in bringing them back into the land and said, What great things God has done for them. It's intentional. God often does great things for people. He often lets the world get a peek into what He's doing. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He's revealed His righteousness in the sight of nations. He's remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth has seen the salvation of our God. So it's all the nations are watching and seeing what Israel did when they went back to land, how great God is. God has done great things for them. It's a little bit like the time when uh, Israel was going in and conquering the land for the first time. World, word got around to the pagan nations how great God was. The Rahab the harlot said this, I know this, that the Lord has given you this land and the terror of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when He came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were behind the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God of heaven above and on earth beneath. They saw what God did to the other nations, those in Jericho, and they, they trembled with fear. And so likewise, when the exiles went back, people heard about it and said, God has done great things for them, giving glory to God. But it wasn't just the nations. It was also Israel. It wasn't lost on them. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. And no, listen, church family, it was the Lord's doing that came back. It wasn't a fortuitous turn of political events that brought them back. It was God who brought them back. The Lord is the one who stirred the heart of the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, <clears throat> to send a proclamation throughout all the kingdom, issuing an invitation for any willing Jew to go back into the land. In fact, it says, it says that in Ezra 1.1. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. It was the Lord who put it in the heart of Cyrus <clears throat> to fund such an effort. Listen to Ezra 1, verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, 
has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. God appointed me to go and build the house. It's a pagan king, most powerful man on the planet. And God moved his heart to support and fund this effort to return the Jews back to the land. God did it. Indeed, the Lord has done great things for us. That's why we're glad. It was the Lord who stirred the hearts of the people to come back to the land. Ezra 1.5 Then the heads of the father's households and Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose. Even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. God stirred the hearts of the people to get up and to go to Jerusalem. Don't think it was an easy thing to do either. I mean, when you think about the, the journey from Babylon to Israel, think about uh, the early settlers in the land. They traveled west to California. It took months of caravanning and, and over across a difficult land full of dangers all along the way. Well, the dangers from Native Americans or the dangers from the harshness of the weather. And when they traveled from Babylon to Israel, also there were dangers. But you know what? God is the one who protected them. When the Jews came back, Ezra said this, Ezra 8, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, it's in Babylon, that we might humble ourselves before the Lord to seek from Him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and our possessions. So they're praying to God for a, a, safe, a safe journey, because it's a dangerous journey they knew. He says, For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy along the way. Because he had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed towards all who seek him, but his power and his anger against all those who forsake him. So he fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. So God, God brought them there. He stirred Cyrus. He, he uh, stirred the hearts of the people. He protected them all along the way, bringing them back. The Lord has done great things for us. And the obvious question is this, has the Lord done great things for you? Are you glad this morning? Can you relate to these people when the Lord restored our fortunes, when He has done great things for us? And, and perhaps the best parallel here for us to evaluate might be the parallel of the great, the great goodness of God in our salvation. Think about it. By God's grace, by faith in Jesus Christ, God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, we may not have been transferred from physical kingdoms, like from Babylon to Jerusalem, but we've been transferred from spiritual kingdoms, from the domain of darkness into the, the kingdom of God. We've gone from being slaves of sin to being free in Christ. We've gone from spiritual death to being made alive in Jesus Christ. And we ought never forget this. Paul wrote to the Epistle of the Ephesians, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, I might just say all of us here, unless there's Jewish people among us, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that at that time you're separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were in Babylon have been brought to Jerusalem. And don't forget how marvelous this is. Is that you had, had no promise of God to do this to you? You were strangers to the covenant. 
You had no hope. You had no scriptures by which you can say, yes, God, you must bring me back. But God, by his mercy and grace, merely brought us into his kingdom, brought near by the blood of Christ, through whom we have forgiveness. We believe and trust in him and all our sins are wiped away. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. I want to just step back from the psalm at this point and really ask this question. Why would the psalmist bring this up? the people of Israel? Why, why talk about the past? Because this is all past. The psalmist actually lives in verse 3.5. He lives right here. He's recalling the time when that happened with Israel. And then at verses 4 and 5, he's prayerful, looking forward towards what, what lies ahead. But, but he's recalling these things about what happened. I, I just say, why bring up the past emotions of those who return from the land of captivity? Why, why do that? Well, here's my answer. Remembering the wonder of God's working in the past helps us to worship the Lord with a fresh heart today. Because we might remember all that God did for us back then. And we might be stirred in our heart to say, I remember that's how I felt. May I feel that way again, O Lord. Sadly, the things of God can be commonplace. Such that God forbid we take everything for granted. We lose the wonder of it all. And as those pilgrims travel up that road to Jerusalem three times a year, maybe they'd lost the wonder of it all. Maybe they would go up to Jerusalem and say, yeah, we've done this before. I know where to go. In fact, even from when I was a little boy, I walked this same road to go and worship the Lord every time. It just kind of be rote. It's kind of be the same thing. And, and you all are in danger of that as well. I'm in danger of that. Coming to church week in, week out. Just I know I've been there. I've done that before. He's stirring our hearts to be reminded of, of what God has done for us. And particularly for these people, think about what God has done for you, Israel, so as to rebuild the land where you are in. Don't take it for granted even you have a land. Remember when they were exiled? They didn't have a land. And they were excited to have a land. They're reminded how much the Lord had done, the great work that God had done. They're reminded of the joy of those who first returned to the land. And I think that the goal here is to have worshipers have a fresh heart to worship the Lord. I think of um, a couple hymns come to mind. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain, for me who Him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Same spirit, same thing that how can it be, God, that you would die for me? And that would just energize your worship. Or another hymn, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. How wonderful. And, and I stand amazed at all he's done. And I think the psalmist here is saying this. When you come up to Jerusalem, Jews, never forget how wonderful and awesome it is that you get to worship here in this place. Don't ever take it for granted. And Rock Valley Bible Church, I'd say, don't ever take your worship to the Lord for granted. Or, or even pertinent to us as well. We've been in this building two and a half years. Do you remember what it was like the first couple weeks when we worshipped here in this building? It sure beat the cafeteria at Rockford Christian High School, didn't it? 
And, and it was just a joyous time that we as a church were rejoicing in a new place that we had. And uh, yet I fear that over the years we'll just, oh yeah, there's that church building and kind of take it for granted. And not realize just how, how much work went into getting this, how much labor did the years of faithfulness that God was, was blessed us with. And just realize that, that God is gracious and He gave us this place. So may we, may we never forget, just like Jerusalem was never to be forgotten in the specialness by those who came and worshipped. And so that may that be our heart worshipping to the Lord when we gather together to worship Him. And, and the sad reality is that we often lose this wonder. And I do believe that that's what verses 4 through 6 are about. They're about those who lose their wonder saying, God, help us not to lose our wonder. Look at 4 through 6. This is, we've seen joyful, now we're looking at prayerful. prayerful. Here is a prayer. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro, weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now again, we have the same translational problem. We had in verse 1, the English Standard Version, the New International Version, read it like this. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Whereas the New American Standard says this. Restore our captivity, O Lord. But I thought that was done in verse 1. And here they're asking for it again. I think verse 4, it means the same thing. Both of them mean, God, what you started in verse 1, Continue to do in an ever-increasing and a bountiful way. Restore our fortunes. Bring us back. Bring all the exiles back from Babylon. Completely restore the captives in the land, O God. And help us to grow and help us to abound. See, when the captives came back to the land and the fortunes of Israel were restored, things weren't restored completely. It wasn't, Rome wasn't built in a day, and nor was Jerusalem rebuilt in a moment. In fact, there were major problems in Jerusalem when they came back. First of all, not everyone returned on the first trip. There were several waves of refugees coming back to the land. Remember in Ezra 1, it said that whoever God stirred to come back, God didn't stir everyone's heart to come back. There were three waves, at least. Zerubbabel came back and he built the temple. And a list of those who came back in his return are in Ezra chapter 2. Ezra came back and he established the, the whole the priestly law. He taught the law and established, reinstituted the law. And a list of those who returned were included in Ezra chapter 8. And Nehemiah came later even to help build the walls. And others certainly came with him. And there were probably trickles for that time. Maybe there were other big caravans. We don't certainly know about it. But as the years wore on, more and more people returned to land. But not everyone did. There's still plenty of the Jews who remained in Babylon. So restore us. Bring us all back here together like we were before we were exiled. But if you know anything about the return, not only just the numbers didn't return, but all was not perfect in Jerusalem. When they tried to build the temple, they faced much opposition. The enemies of Israel rose up and discouraged their work. It says in Ezra 4, verse 4, the people of the land discouraged the building, the people of Judah, and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel. So when they came back to the land, there were people then, when Judah was exiled, there was still a remnant who stayed there, but there were also people of the land who kind of came in and said, oh, free buildings, and they kind of come in and stay their land. Judah's coming back, and the people there of the land didn't like it. They start stirring trouble. A little bit like American settlers when they came into Indian territory, the Indians didn't like it so much. They were taking their land. And men like Rehum and Shimshai wrote slanderous letters back to Persia, telling the homeland what was taking place. And these letters are going back like this. To King Artaxerxes, 
let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They're building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. And now because we are in the service of the palace, and is it not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor? Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. And this little letter to the king stopped the work for 16 years. Discouragement set in. The Jews of the land faced much opposition building the wall. Sanballat and Tobiah were great hinders to the work. If you just read through Nehemiah, you'll see they ridiculed the quality of the work. They mocked them when they built the wall. This is what they said. They said, um, what they're building, that wall they're building, even if a fox should jump on it, he'd break their stone wall down. You say, that's not a wall. They're by discouraging the people. Sanballat and Tobiah conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause disturbance in it. And they even threatened to kill the inhabitants of Jerusalem to stop the work. On a handful of occasions, they tried to seduce Nehemiah to some meeting that they wanted to have for him, but they were planning to harm him. And Nehemiah, by God's grace, didn't go. And these are struggles of those they had in the land who opposed the work. And verse 4 is about restore our captivity, right? Restore our fortunes. Let us build. God, let it be successful. Let it be prosperous. But even during the uh, even though they faced other difficulties as well, because during the years of captivity, when the Jews were left there, they didn't remain pure, but they intermarried with the people around them. And so when they came back to the land, they saw that the people of, of Judah had done something expressly forbidden in the law, Deuteronomy 7.3. And the books, both of Ezra and Nehemiah, have long prayers of repentance Ezra contains Ezra's prayer of repentance and just how, how appalled he was at the sinfulness of people to have intermarried. And Nehemiah was just a huge national prayer where there's national repentance. Things weren't all going well. There were sinful people in the land. It was not perfect in Jerusalem. There were great problems. But that's what the prayer of verse 4 is about. Restore our captivity, God. Yes, you've begun a work, but bring it to completion. And we get a simile here. How to do that? As the streams in the south. Some of your translations may as the streams in the Negev. Negev is simply the Hebrew word for south. As the streams in the Negev. The Negev is a hot and dry and dusty and nasty place. It's a barren place. Very little grows in the Negev. Heat and lack of water simply too much for anything there to grow. It's called the wilderness. When David fled to the wilderness, that's where he went. There's just nothing there. It's like a desert of deserts. Been there, extremely hot, extremely nothing's growing. Now, in, in the Negev, there are some places where there, there's some big river valleys um, that, are, that are just like, like um, uh, big valleys. And, and if you were an evolutionist, you'd look at that and say, well, I think these were carved out by rivers over a long period of time because you can see it there in the sandstone and just layer upon layer. But now there's no river here anymore. That's how... An evolutionary thinking might be that that's not really what they think because they know full well that whenever it rains, hard desert soil doesn't absorb any of it. And what happens to all that rain? It all gets funneled down these riverbeds. And when it rains, these riverbeds are just torrents of water. There's just gushes out, gushes through these these valleys, sweeping everything away and forging afresh these river valleys. 
And that's the picture used here in verse 4. Restore captivity, right? God, God complete it and bring it just as a gushing overflow of everything like the rains, the rivers in the south when they come. It's a prayer for revival. It's a prayer for massive revival. Oh, that God would restore Jerusalem, return all of its captives like the gushing of water, the southern streams after a rain. It's an acknowledgement, really, that all is not well now, but there is hope that God will restore all things. That comes in verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro, weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. These verses promise joy after the tears. The farmer may well go out in sorrow to sow his seed. But in due time, the harvest will come in. You say, why does a farmer go out in sorrow? Well, in some regards back then, is that the seed they have, they're given, they could have eaten the seed, but they sacrifice it so as to put it in the ground so that it would, would grow again. But it's all metaphorically speaking about the troubles and trials that, that people go through. But in the end, there is joy in the end. It's really the reality of Christian life. Often it's difficult, hard. Years of sowing are hard, but the years of reaping are, are joyful. In fact, it is true that if you are a Christian, those who come to Christ will come to know more joy than ever has been known before in your life. If you come to Jesus, you know the joy of burdens of sins forgiven. The joy of burdens lifted, sins forgiven. You'll experience a blessing that comes with obedience. You know the encouragement, looking forward to the happiness and joy of heaven. But when someone comes to Christ, he or she will know more sorrow than they've ever known before as well. They'll know the horror of their own sin before the Lord. They'll come to see their own sinfulness, their own lack of sanctification, and will sorrow before the Lord. They'll experience the pains of persecution from others. They made it fun of to follow Jesus, sometimes even death. They'll know the realities of what awaits those apart from Christ. Just, just the, the unpained sorrow, as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, 10, I think. I have unceasing sorrow in my heart for my kinsmen who are lost. It's just the, the sorrow that comes. But the promise here is that the, you sow in sorrow... You will reap in joy. And here's a big promise. I think they could look back and say, we had 70 years of sorrow and now we have our years of joy. But even in our joy, it's maybe not as good as it could be. And so whatever, any sorrow here, just wait. God is good and He will help us. Uh, Philippians 1, 6 comes to mind, right? He who began a good work in you, verses 1 through 3, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Answering the prayer, verse 4, and trusting in the promise of verses 5 and 6. And I just say it's easy to lose that joy. It's easy to lose that hope. We need a, a fresh perspective of things. In fact, I remember a, a friend of mine um, in high school, didn't know him really well, but um, one time he, you know, this was probably 10 years after high school, so whatever, 15 years ago, he got in a bad car accident, broke his neck, and barely lived. And uh, when I was had a chance to talk with him, he was all excited about the Lord, what great things God had done for him, kept him alive. 
And today he's back playing in his bands in Las Vegas, living the nightlife and not doing a whole lot. But there's people who lost their joy. People who one time professed his faith and, and have lost it. Or even Christians can be sorrowful. It can be difficult. But the promise of verse 5 and 6 is that the, the joy will come. But I have to warn you of a danger. So I bring my message to a close. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Last book of the Bible. It's a great illustration of the danger of losing joy. Those who know Christ. This is a letter written by Jesus to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, we know much about that church. Paul founded that church. Wrote a letter to that church. Timothy pastored that church uh, for many years. Paul stayed in that church for at least three years. It's a good church. But here's what happened. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, and the one who does all those things is Jesus. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. These are good things. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. I mean, these are all, these are all wonderful things. Uh, I know your deeds. You have toil and perseverance. That means when the going gets rough, the, rough, the tough gets going, and you all are tough. You're, you're going. You're not, you're not falling away. You're, you're, you're pressing on. You're persevering even through hard times. And I know that you're doctrinally sound. Verse 2 says you can't tolerate evil men. If people claim to be apostles, you put them right up to the test. You say, yeah, are you, are you an apostle or not? No. And you have pure teaching in your church. You have persevered. You have gone strong. You have good teaching in your church. You don't tolerate wicked men. You don't tolerate false teaching. Verse 3 again says you have perseverance. You've endured for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. Even when reproach comes because of the name of Christ, they've not grown weary. They've endured. These are wonderful things. But he says, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Therefore, he says, because you've left your first love, get your first love back. Remember from where you have fallen. You had this love, so get it back and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you. And we'll remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The lampstand there, of course, is the church. I'm going to remove your church unless you repent. What do they need to do? They need to capture this first love. What, what was this first love? Well, it's been debated. Love for God, love for neighbors, love for each other, love for the lost. I don't, I don't know what it is. We're not going to solve that problem today. But whatever it means, it means that they had lost heart in some way. Whereas once they burned hot... With love, now they are cold. Here's what I suspect. I suspect everything's on the external level now. I suspect that they have the programs. I suspect they have the truth. I suspect that they're busy in the work. They're doing everything required. But they lost the heart they used to have. They're just going through the motions. I think in, in light of Psalm 126, they've lost the joy. Remember what it was like when you were first saved, when you came in and you had the joy and you had your love for, for God and for others? Well, you've like lost that. You've got all these other things. You're, you're working hard just to be commended. You, your teaching is good, but you've, you've lost it. And I'll just say, church family, can you relate? Can you relate in the, 
in the marathon of life to sometimes losing heart and losing your first love. Well, Psalm 126 teaches us anything. It teaches us that we need to remember the joys we had in coming to Christ. And we need to constantly be prayerful that God would help us and sustain us. In Philippians 3, Paul speaks about just attaining Jesus. But he says, not that I've attained it, but what I do is I I press on towards the goal, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's obtained it, but he hasn't obtained it. And, And we have the joy, we have salvation, but we haven't got it. He says, just press on with joy and with love because if it's, only, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen only because the Lord does it. God, restore us. Restore us. Revive us. And help us, O oh Lord. So let's be joyful. Let's be prayerful. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that we can rest and trust that You are going to continue Your work in us both to will and to do for Your good pleasure. And I pray now, Lord, as we transition to the Lord's Supper and thinking about taking bread and drinking from the fruit of the vine, that we might reflect afresh upon Jesus who died for us. He loved us. gave Himself up for us. He purchased with His blood our sin. He's washed us and made us clean. And Father, I would pray that we might just even now search our hearts. And I just encourage all of you, search your hearts. Maybe you've lost your first love. Maybe you've lost your joy. And the solution isn't to just try to drum it up yourself. The solution is to, to pray to the Lord, God, help me get that joy back. Help me get that love back. Because I will only love if you love. If you stir that love in me. I will only be joyful if you stir that joy in me. So plead the Lord even to help you now. And also before we take the Lord's Supper, the Scripture calls us to examine ourselves. Just think of your life and where are you? Are you trusting Jesus? Sure, there are faults and failures. Are you confessing them, acknowledging them before the Lord? Or are you going your own way arrogantly? Let's encourage you to repent whatever needs to be repented of this morning and celebrate the supper with us. If your heart is hard, you're holding sin, you're refusing to repent, I say let the cup and the bread pass you by. This is for those who are walking rightly with the Lord, who, who love Him, who desire to see Him do a, a work in us. And so God, be with us and bless us as we celebrate here the supper you told us to celebrate. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.